passage we're reading today is from Matthew chapter 6, and I'll be reading from verse 9 through 15. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses and your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. So we're going to be revisiting the Lord's Prayer today in this message. And it's pretty audacious to pick probably the most familiar New Testament passage there in the world, but uh, I'm going to try and uh, teach us more about this prayer. It's one of those passages of Scripture that are so familiar we don't give it much thought anymore. But this perhaps keeps us from seeing new things that have been there all along. In any case, we can always use a reminder that centers our prayer lives on what really matters for eternity. And I think the Lord's Prayer does that. Remember the TV show, Kids Say the Darndest Things? And indeed they do. <laughs> We've also seen this happen to the Lord's Prayer when kids attempt to recite it. Here's some of my favorites. Our Father who art in heaven, Howard is your name. <laughs> Or, our Father who art in heaven, how did you know my name? <laughs> Here's one that's a little stranger, but funny. Give us this steak and daily bread and forgive us our mattresses. <laughs> there are many more, I'm sure, but these innocent mistakes at least indicate kids are learning the Lord's Prayer. And that's, that's a good thing. The first slide I have for us today is the uh, Lord's, is Lord's Prayer specifically from Matthew chapter 6 in the King James Version. And uh, this version of the prayer is still used in many churches today. The next slide is what I read this morning from the ESV. And the thing to notice is that the ESV, as other modern translations, uh, stop at the end of at verse 13 with deliver us from evil. If we look back quickly, in the King James Version, it says, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So that's one of the main differences. And then lastly, I wanted to show you uh, the Lord's Prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And I'd like, to, I'd like to read that. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The difference between the King James Version is 
As you see here, it says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The Book of Common Prayer has, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the Lord's Prayer that I was raised on for some reason. But I'm going to leave up the King James Version for future reference because that's what we're going to be talking from primarily. The Book of Common Prayer, which was the last slide shown, is used by more liturgical denominations like the Anglicans, Episcopalians, some Lutherans, some Wesleyan Methodists, and others. And it's essentially the same as the King James Version, except it uses trespasses instead of debts and debtors. We'll be looking primarily at Matthew's account of the Lord's Prayer, but we'll also refer to the prayer as given in Luke's Gospel. So you might put a finger there in his chapter 11, because we'll be turning there. I want to begin by simply addressing some of the questions associated with the prayer in general. For example, if you recite the Lord's Prayer by memory with a group of people outside of your church, I imagine things will go pretty smoothly till you get to the fourth line. And as we noticed in the slides, some will say, forgive us our debts. Some will say, forgive us our trespasses. And you will hear still others say, forgive us our sins. So why the difference? Or the differences? Well, nearly all of the most credible English translations over time have translated the Greek words as debts and debtors. And that's because in the New Testament and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, these words do in fact convey the meaning of owing a financial or moral debt or obligation. And in the prayer, of course, it's really a moral debt that's in view. Now, if you flip over to Luke chapter 11, for just a moment in verse 4, in Luke's account of the prayer, Jesus says, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. In this case, Luke uses the normal word for sins, but he pairs it with the Greek word meaning indebted as Matthew used. So it seems clear that Jesus has a sense of moral debt in mind when referring to sin. Therefore, it's not inaccurate to say forgive us our sins, but it just loses some of the nuance that I believe Jesus apparently intended. As, uh, and so the question might come, why do some traditions say trespasses? Well, as we saw in the Book of Common Prayer, trespasses is used, but if we read down just two more verses in our reading of Matthew, we see another answer. Because in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The very first thing Jesus did after reciting this prayer is expound on the importance of forgiveness. And to really drive home what he meant, he purposefully chose the word trespass instead of the word debt or debtors. Now the Greek word for trespasses captures Jesus' intention in these verses, referring here to the kind of sin that oversteps prescribed limits or boundaries, what we call a trespass. Kind of like the sign on the fence on a man's property. No trespassing. And Jesus wanted his disciples and us, I believe, to understand sin both in the sense of owing a moral debt 
and in the sense of trespassing into forbidden territory. And our trespasses involve both sins against others and, of course, sins against God. And brothers and sisters, we need forgiveness every day. Now, Matthew's portrayal of the prayer differs from Luke's account. It differs in both context and content. It seems like Matthew and Luke portray two different incidents. In Matthew, the prayer is part of the Sermon on the Mount. While in Luke, it is a response to Jesus' disciples asking him to teach them to pray as John taught his disciples. This, I believe, is a reference to John the Baptist, and it was not unusual for Jewish groups to have their own prayer as a way of expressing their corporate identity. Apparently, John the Baptist had a prayer for his disciples. Now Jesus' disciples wanted him to teach them a prayer. And as you note, Luke's version is shorter and simpler than Matthew's. Also note in Matthew it says, pray like this, while in Luke it says, pray this. I think both of these instructions are valid. It is indeed a model prayer, and it is also to be prayed. Early church history is filled with examples of using the Lord's Prayer in church services. However, evangelicals today seem to shy away from it. I'm not sure why, unless perhaps they fear it would become vain repetition, which is what is argued against in this passage. But, for example, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it says this, question 187, how is the Lord's Prayer to be used? The answer, the Lord's Prayer is not only for direction as a pattern, according to which we are to make other prayers, but may also be used as a prayer done with understanding, faith, reverence, and other graces necessary to the right performance of the duty of prayer. So I think it is appropriate that churches still pray the Lord's Prayer. Now for completeness, while we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, we need to remember that Mark didn't give us the Lord's Prayer per se, but he did refer to it. So if you would look at Mark's gospel, uh, his chapter 11, verse 25, that reads, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So there we have the references in the New Testament to the, this specific prayer. We noticed in, earlier in the slides that some Bibles, for example, the King James Version and the New King James, have the versions of Matthew 6.13, longer words, specifically, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, which we can call a doxology. Now, early Protestant translations used the Greek New Testament that was available to them in their day which included the doxology in verse 13. This was the text used by William Tyndale for his English translations. It was used for the Geneva Bible and for the King James Bible. However, as years went by and more and more Greek manuscripts were discovered, it became clear that the most ancient ones did not have the doxology in verse 13. 
Accordingly, more recent English translations omit it. For example, the NASB, the ESV, which we read from this morning, NIV do not include the doxology at the end of verse 13. Most, however, will show the doxology in brackets or at least acknowledge it in a footnote. But this shouldn't be troublesome because the theology of this doxology has Old Testament roots and is expressed in many other places in the New Testament. Let's just look at two examples. If you want to, you can turn back to the Old Testament to 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 11. Remember, we're looking for passages that essentially say what the doxology says. 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heavens in the heavens and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Sounds pretty much like what the doxology said at the end of Matthew 13. And finally, the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, we read this. Chapter 5, verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The same truth expressed in the doxology of Matthew's prayer is really not lost. We haven't lost anything. The same truth is found all over Scripture. Now the prayer itself is presented in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. If we, lay, if we take the Lord's Prayer as a specific picture before us, then we might say that every picture needs a frame to be properly displayed. And in this analogy, the picture is the prayer and the frame is the context. We're so familiar with the prayer itself that it would be helpful to remind ourselves of the context in which it is given. It's like looking at your neighborhood in Google Maps and then zooming in on one house. The neighborhood represents the context, the house, the prayer itself. So in the broad context, we need to see what is relevant earlier in Matthew's gospel. One thing that seems important is Jesus' emphasis on the kingdom of God. For example, if you flip back to Matthew chapter 4, Verse 17, it says that from that time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now look down just a few verses to chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Therefore, we see this emphasis on the kingdom rightly expressed in the Lord's Prayer. Now, in the nearer context, looking specifically at Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount. Consequently, all those, those three chapters, the sermon is presented in Jesus' words by Matthew. And if you have a red-letter edition, virtually all three chapters will be in red. But it's interesting, in Matthew 5, 6, 
5 verse 6, one of the Beatitudes looks forward to the Lord's Prayer when it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look forward and hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Now, of course, the nearest context is the section verses 1 through 18 of Matthew chapter 6, which includes the words immediately before and immediately after the prayer itself. Now, Jesus is concerned with how his disciples practice their faith. And Jesus contrasts the children of God with the hypocrites and the Gentiles. The overall command is seen in Matthew 6 verse 1. It says there, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. As we look at the next few verses, we see this stated in various ways, but in essence, verses 2 through 4, we are instructed that when you give to the poor, don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Rather, give to the poor in secret. Verses 5 and 6, We are told that when you pray, don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Rather, pray to your Father in secret. Now finally, jumping past the prayer to the end of this section in verses 16 through 18, we are taught again that when fasting, don't draw attention to yourself like the hypocrites. Fast secretly. They used to make a big deal out of fasting. Sackcloth, ashes out on the street corner so everybody can see they were fasting and suffering for the Lord. That's not the way it's to be done. In each of these situations, Jesus says the the hypocrites will reap the reward they seek, honor and praise from men, but nothing else. Those whose practices are done in faith without concern for public notoriety, notoriety will be rewarded by God. It, It just makes me think of what we see today is, a, is seeking for notoriety, especially on television and uh, televangelists and such. They seem to be seeking notoriety rather than seeking God. So anyway, this is the context, the frame around the picture. Now the Lord's Prayer in verses 9 through 13 as well as verse 14 on forgiveness falls in the middle of this instruction. It's not a prayer to be prayed to attract attention but it is a personal trust and communication between us and God. The Lord's Prayer is not an isolated collection of six requests, although it contains six requests. And while it is instruction from Jesus on how to pray, it's more than that. The Lord's Prayer is an illustration of what it looks like to pray to a Heavenly Father who knows what you need before you ask Him. It's an example how to pray in faith, how not to practice your righteousness before men, and how to seek reward from God. And it is a reminder that our relationship with God can't be divorced from our relationship with other people. The flow of the prayer can really be addressed in four steps. The person, the priority, the problems, and the prerequisite. First, the person to whom we pray. In verse 9, God is addressed as Father, which brings forth family and relational imagery. 
God is our Father, graciously near us through Christ. The adjective our, when it says our Father, indicates this is to be a corporate prayer by believers. Next, God is our Heavenly Father, gloriously transcendent above and beyond us. And finally, Jesus' emphasis on hallowing God's name is also consistent with prior Old Testament tradition. For example, if you look back at Psalm 34, verse 3, you don't need to turn there. It simply says, O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And why do we exalt his name? Because his name represents his person and his character. In the Lord's Prayer, we are specifically to address God as our Father. But this is part of a longer and wider point Jesus is making about God's family. And here's an interesting point. Until the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had not spoken of God as Father in Matthew's Gospel. It's not there. But in these three chapters, 5 through 7, Jesus refers to God as Father 17 times, and a whopping 12 of them come in chapter 6, along with the Lord's Prayer. Part of Jesus' point is that his disciples have a new relationship with God. He is not simply the lawgiver or judge. He is our Father. This is the specific point Jesus is making when he introduces the Lord's Prayer. He tells his disciples not to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles think they can pray and that their many words will be effective for having God answer their prayers. But for the disciples... Disciples, God is Father, and your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. You do not need a lengthy or eloquent prayer to turn God's gaze. You already have His attention. You're His child. Of course He will listen. The way we pray, including the Lord's Prayer, reveals whether or not we believe God is our loving Father. Now, secondly, the priority in our prayer verses 9 through 10. These are three requests addressed to God. Now we could call these the your requests. Your name, your kingdom, and your will. And these three requests essentially express the same idea, and that's the desire that God's reign will be realized on earth as it is in heaven. Thirdly, the problems which are expressed in our human needs in verses 11 through 13. Here there are three requests regarding us and our needs. So we can call these the our requests. We have the your requests followed by the our requests. And we're encouraged by Jesus to pray for daily provision, for forgiveness, and for the avoidance of temptation. Let's look in a minute at, for a minute at the three-hour requests. First, give us this day our daily bread. This is God asking God to meet one of our most basic human needs. Now, our freight freezers may be stocked with food, but not so in every household. There are millions in this world who still pray for their next meal. There are many in this city who pray for their next meal. Perhaps there are some in our own body who are not sure where their next meal is coming from. 
We need to recognize that God often meets these needs through his people, through the local church. So with that admonition, may we be ready to minister in that way when the need arises. Second of the our requests, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Essentially, this means deal with us as we deal with others. Think about that. We're asking God to deal with us as we deal with others. That's a sobering thought for me. How I deal with others is far short of what it should be and not how I hope God deals with me. I'll touch on this again in a minute. But finally, the third hour request is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. First, the book of James makes clear in his chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It might be good to turn there real quick. James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person, get this, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's our enemy as far as temptation is, it's our own sinful desires. This thought is true, and it's something that's expressed in the Old Testament as well. Psalm 141, verse 4, is a verse in point. It says there, Do not let my heart incline to any evil. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we're asking for. We must recognize, however, that God does, does allow his people to be tempted and tested, or tested. In fact, it's the same Greek word, translated tempt or test. But Paul tells us the following in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. This is a familiar verse. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In all things, God is our deliverer, and he has given us the means to have victory over sin. According to Ephesians chapter 6, he has given us the armor. We have to but put it on to resist sin. Finally, the prerequisite for approaching God in prayer is given in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now the word for at the beginning of verse 14 is instructive. Jesus' teaching on prayer must be connected to believers' interaction with other people. I think that's the point he's making. The way we approach God in prayer and even the forgiveness we seek from God is connected to the way we forgive others. Now this doesn't mean we can earn forgiveness from God, but the way people treat those who have sinned against them reveals an important part of their heart toward God. 
Those who are forgiven by God make a consistent practice of forgiving others, and those who do not forgive others may not have really grasped the greatness of the forgiving love of God in Christ. So in summary, the prayer requests begin with God's glory, his name, his kingdom, his will, and flows into our needs for sustenance, forgiveness, past sin, the avoidance of future sin. There are three requests for God's glory and three for human needs. And finally, in verse 14 and 15, our own forgiveness is tied to our willingness to forgive others. The prayer begins not with petitions for human needs, but with God-centered petitions. This means that the prayer is primarily a matter of God receiving our worship, not our receiving God's answers. Prayer is not primarily about us because God knows what we need before we ask. Jesus addresses our Father in heaven, not my Father in heaven, teaching us that we should not pray individualistically, but as members of a community. We pray to our Father who relates to us as his family. Our God relates to us as a loving Father to restore us to fellowship with himself. God may be high above us in heaven, but he's delighted when his frail, earthly children worship him and ask him to meet their needs. So primarily, prayer is worship of God, flowing out of our experience of his grace in Christ and being part of his family. Prayer is not a transaction or a technique we use to get stuff. Our Heavenly, our Heavenly Father delights in meeting our needs. But this prayer requires us first to focus on his glory and the fulfillment of his reign. Lastly, we should not pray in an escapist manner, like, beam me up, Jesus, get me out of here. In fact, God's ultimate plan for the future is not for us to go to heaven, but for heaven to come to earth. There's an old gospel song that says, this world is not my home. But the last two chapters of the Bible says, that this world, renewed by the power of Christ, is our home. May his kingdom come. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May this continue to be our prayer on our earthly pilgrimage and may we find fellowship with one another in what is eternal and holy. Bless us so that we remain free from all bondage, able to thank you day and night for all the good you do, even when things around us look so very dark. We praise your name and pray as Jesus taught us. Amen.